Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. We can control a lot of things about our health and our reproductive function. We cannot do anything about how long we've lived on this earth. Like zero, absolutely nothing. So um, to focus on our age and to focus on what it is and, and what it might mean in terms of the ticking clock really serves us no benefit whatsoever. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and I'm excited to talk about a highly requested topic today. We're diving into the concept of reproductive longevity. I'm honored to have a powerhouse member of the integrative fertility community with me today. My guest is the one and only Dr. Mark Sklar, AKA the fertility expert. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Sklar. He is a natural fertility specialist, helping couples get pregnant for over 20 years. His mission is to help you feel hopeful and confident in your fertility journey. In addition to his doctor of acupuncture and oriental medicine, Dr. Sklar trained at the Harvard Medical School Mind Body Medical Institute. He's the creator of Fertility TV, MarkSklar.com, and ReproductiveWellness.com. He's a fellow of the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine and medical advisor for Natural Health International. In addition to his online program, he also supports his community via his highly popular YouTube channel, Fertility TV, where he shares information-packed videos to educate his followers on all things fertility. We are certainly in for a treat. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sklar. Thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. It's a treat for me to be here and talking with you. Um, so I'm excited for it. I know we share so many clinical loves and reproductive longevity is certainly <laughs> one of them. I've seen you call yourself an ovarian optimist, which I resonate with so much. <laughs> I thought we should talk about this mm, question that I get in my messages and my email all the time. Can I get pregnant when I'm older than 35? Yeah, <laughs> you get them. I'm sure we all get them. Um, I, I get that question quite a bit. And I, I, you know, I think the, the first thing I love that, that um, term ovarian optimist. Um, I'm, I'm certainly one who views life and the glass as half full. And I think when we're on our fertility journey and on our fertility struggles, <clears throat> so much of it is about fear and negativity and uh, suppression um, and misinformation. And so it's really unfortunate that so many of us have that viewpoint. And even if you were, you know, a positive person when you've been struggling for a while and so many people have told you you can't, it's really hard to break out of that thought process. Um, you start to believe it. So I, I think that that question, as much as I chuckle about it, you know, can I get pregnant at 35? I think it's a really valuable, important question. And I would even expand it. I would say whether we're talking about 35, 38, 40, 42, whatever number, right? There, the possibility of conception is a hundred percent there. You know, and I think that that we're as a culture, we're not doing um, we're not doing anyone any service by all the fear tactics and negativity that they read, whether it's in the the media or 
you know, when they walk into their OBGYN office or their REI's office or whatever it might be, we're not doing them any service. I actually think if we would just change that one thing in the OBG office and the fertility clinics and just focus on being positive and optimistic and supportive, I think success rates would just change dramatically just by that alone. So yes, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. And for me, there's no reason why someone can't conceive whether they're 35, 38, 40, 42, whatever number we want to um, you know, talk about, there's there the possibility is there and the opportunity is there. And I think the bigger piece is why haven't we conceived up until this point? Um, and what's not letting us, you know, achieve that and really focusing there, which I know you and I do quite a bit in 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 how we approach patients and and the couples that we support, but that's the missing piece. And and so much of the world when it comes to fertility right now is so focused on IVF and IVF success, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with, with IVF. But I think because of that, we miss so much and we ignore so much when we're really trying to support these couples. Absolutely agreed. And uh, I'm turning 36 this year. So I get it when we see these articles and even when you see this in a magazine or you see an article about it online, there's always like a big clock that's ticking. There's always this right. image and it makes you feel like I am running out of time. The yeah. imagery we use, the words we use, it's all very scary. And I think when we um, are worried about our fertility, it accesses a place in our nervous system that nothing else does. It's deeply disturbing. Yeah. So as you mentioned, patients come they have a lot of fear. They've maybe even received this advanced maternal age label, which doesn't feel great. It sounds to me like your approach to address that fear is kind of to refocus on the things that we can control and the investigation that still lies ahead. I mean, tell us a little bit about how you how you create a container for that fear in that conversation. Yeah, actually, actually, this past week and, you know, you, everything ebbs and flows into this past week, I've actually been having a lot of this specific conversation. Um, and, you know, I think the one thing that we all need to, to take out of this is that we can control a lot of things about our health and our reproductive function. We cannot do anything about how long we've lived on this earth. Like, Zero, absolutely nothing. So um, to focus on our age and to focus on what it is and, and what it might mean in terms of the ticking clock really serves us no benefit whatsoever. So if we want to focus on some some aspect of age, per se, because that's that's the topic, then I would say let's focus on our cellular age, because that is something that we can control, that we can improve, that we can focus on, um, we have some influence over. And let's use that as a, a guide for ourselves. Um, and so, look, I think um, in terms of creating a container, when I'm talking to and, and kind of trying to um, control that thought process, that fear, I think two things come into play. One is, are you're scared because of the individual who was on the other side of the desk wearing a white coat who said to you, you're too old and you need to do IVF. And that's usually why they're scared. That's usually the scenario that happens. Um, 
And just this week, I was speaking to someone, and when I looked at all her lab work, um, and and I had a couple of different scenarios like this, so I'll try to keep it focused to the one. But um, um, when I was looking at her lab work, I looked at it and I just said, "Look, you know, your FSH looks good, your estradiol looks good, LH looks great, AMH looks great, thyroid's functioning well." why are you concerned? And she said, well, the doctor said I'm too old. I'm like your fertility doctor said you're too old because that is the only thing that she could tell you to get you to move forward with IVF. And, and I'm not saying there's not a place for in vitro fertilization. There certainly is, but it's also a big money-making industry. And you have to be working with a clinic and a doctor that you trust and believe has your best interest at heart. And if the only answer they're giving you is because of your age and you're not 45 or above, then I think we need to second second guess who you're working with and find someone who's going to be more supportive and more optimistic to work with you as a partner in this process. And I think so often that's missing. So for me, it's about giving them hope and understanding that, you know, the circumstances and what you've been told may not necessarily be true and accurate for your specific situation. And even if they are, let's focus on the things that we absolutely know that you can control and let's take baby steps. You know, if you're just looking at the end result and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be such a difficult process, you're never going to get started. You're never going to get started. It's going to be too daunting. But if we say to, to ourselves, like this week or this month or whatever time frame you want to put on it, I'm going to focus on cleaning up my diet. And that's the only, I'm just going to take baby steps. I'm just going to do this. And I'm going to feel good about this. And then when that, when I feel good about that, I'm going to add in the next thing, right? That might be having better sleep. That might be managing your stress. That might be some supplements, whatever it's going to be for you. And then you slowly build, you know, maybe others can take on more at one time than, than somebody else. But if it's overwhelming, just start with one thing, build and create some momentum and some positive movement in the right direction so that you have something to build from and you feel good about it, right? Like you're like, okay, I feel good. I've done these things. Now I can do a little bit more and you're going to start to feel better and notice the change in yourself that will be motivating for you as well to make more changes as you move forward. So it's really about focusing on the positive, um, giving them a different perspective because there typically is a different perspective to be had um, and really just being as supportive and working with those individuals, right? Like to find how are we going to do this for you? What's going to be the best path for you that makes sense that's going to allow you to build confidence and hope that you can continue to build on this and, and have success? I love this idea of the feed forward positive cycle. You make a change, you see the benefit, it's motivating to do another and then another until you're feeling really good. Yeah. I've been interested. I've I've had this observation where we're in this era of longevity, longevity medicine. Everybody's talking about anti-aging. And we see that it's more acceptable like, oh, it's totally normal that you would run a marathon when you're 70. But we're still not thinking about it in terms of fertility. We're still putting such a these parameters around our fertility longevity. And I've really been 
loving to talk to people about the difference in chronological age and biological age. And your biological age is not a function of time. It's a function of how well your body is working. And with functional and integrative medicine, we can always improve function. So I think that, I don't know, it gives me some reassurance and some comfort when we're really crunching the numbers and doing the math over here. So Dr. Sklar, I think that there's so many people that say, I'm motivated, I'm ready. What are maybe your top three things that we can do right now to help support longevity in our reproductive health? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the things that we can do to support our reproductive health are going to be things that are just going to naturally support our overall health, right? Like we have to think about this, but what can I do to be healthier, period? And if we are healthier, then our fertility and reproductive function is healthier. Um, So it's not always, you know, I think we're always looking for these like magical things specifically around fertility. And I want everyone to just think about, let's just, what can I do to be healthier overall? So diet's a huge one. It has to be the number one thing that we focus on because there's nothing that I know of that we do more. I'm going to put breathing on top of that um, than, than eating, right? Like there's nothing that we do more than put things into our mouth to feed and nourish our souls and our bodies. And so we need to make sure that is on point. It doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not asking you to be a hundred percent perfect with how we eat. And I do think it's important that we give ourselves some flexibilities, but we know if what we're consuming is good or bad for us. I mean, we live in a, you know, time frame where it's not rocket science to figure out that, McDonald's is no good. (laughs) And, you know, eating whole foods and fresh foods that I cook and know the source, know where they came from, and I'm controlling all those things. We know that that's better for us. And typically, if we do that, we feel better. So, you know, I don't think there's anything earth shattering here. It's about prioritizing that and making that really important for you. Right. So, and when you are going to stray from that diet, can we maybe not stray too far? right? Like how can we manage that so that it feeds what you need, but it doesn't have to take you to a whole different place um, from, from what you're trying to accomplish overall, right? And I think as we start to do that, and I hear this all the time, I just heard from uh, a woman who just had her um, uh, egg retrieval done. And she said, oh, as a treat, um, I've been so good for you know a year and a half as a treat. I'm gonna. I bought myself this big slice of cake, and I want you know. I sat down and it was just gonna be mine, and I'm gonna enjoy it. And she's like, I had three bites and I couldn't eat anymore because her taste buds changed and her body changed, and she doesn't want it anymore. So as we get used to living that way, we're our bodies are gonna change, and you won't even crave that anymore. So I would put diet at the top of the list. Um, I think sleep is often ignored. Um, And in the type of culture that we live in now, sleep is really reduced and severely compromised because we're either working extremely hard. And so we work more hours and compromise our sleep for that. Um, Or, you know, which is not my favorite, we're just trying to catch up with our next Netflix, you know, series and we're binge watching and staying up till 12, one or two in the morning. I can't tell you how often I hear that. And so, you know, if you, if you have to wake up at six or seven every morning to get to work, 
that's not enough hours of sleep. So we really compromise our sleep dramatically. And that's one of the most important things uh, for all of us to really just allow our bodies to recover and rest and heal. Um, and so that that's a big one. And I think the third one, which I've been talking so much more about, and it's really pervasive and quite frankly, difficult and, and overwhelming to manage. But I think with steps we can, and it's an ongoing process, is really just managing environmental exposure to toxins and chemicals. I mean, it's such a huge thing. I know you live on a farm. So maybe for you, it might be a little bit different than for everybody else, because you can kind of control and you don't have so many things around you. But really, it's so difficult to manage all those um, chemical exposures and toxins. And the more and more that I am looking for those things and addressing those, those chemicals in the couples that we're supporting, the more I'm constantly in shock at how much I'm finding and what I'm seeing. And I know for sure that these are absolutely comp compromising our health and our fertility and our endocrine system. So those would be the top three things that I would say today that we really need to be focusing on and cleaning up. Well, it's interesting, even how you said, you know, we might pick one habit and we work on that and then we move on to the next thing. Even within, we could use in the environmental exposures oh. as an example, you could number one, first you clean up your cleaning products that you use in your house. Then you move on to the things that touch your skin and then you yep. move on. You know, you can really even take that into bite-sized chunks if you need to, Absolutely. which I did. I certainly yeah. had to. Yeah. You can't, that's overwhelming. Like that you yeah. have to take in bite-sized chunks and you, and plus you've spent all this money on all these different things that you're either using on your body or in your home that you're like, what am I going to do now with this? Just throw it out and be done. And some people are totally fine doing that and that's fine. But typically I find we'll be like, okay, that needs to be replaced. So let me swap it out for something better. And you slowly over a period of time, you've now made this huge change and over time, you're going to feel better. So that's specifically about minimizing and reducing your exposure on a daily basis. And that's why those like baby steps and changes make such a big difference. Yeah, you also reminded me of this quote that I read about sleep. And I hope I don't mess it up now because it really struck me. But I saw this on social media and they were talking about when you... Uh, maybe you get up at four in the morning to exercise. And so it's still, you know, you're getting up to do something healthy, but they said, if you are only sleeping five hours a night to exercise, you're really stepping over dollars to get to pennies. I, I say this story and, and this has happened. I'll say the one story, but this has happened multiple times. And you saying that, you know, is exactly what happened. So I had um, a woman that I was working with and she, this was years ago and I've seen it repeatedly and everything was working well and everything was perfect. And I'm like, you should be getting pregnant. Like, I don't understand what's going on. So we just sat down and I said, walk me through your day. So she says, well, I get up and I'm like, okay, what time? What time do you get up? She goes, I get up at five in the morning. I'm like, okay, seems a little early, but we'll go with it for right now. She says, I wake up at five. I go exercise for an hour and then she's going through her day, da, da, da. And then she says, and, and then I go to bed. I'm like, okay, what time do you go to sleep? And she goes, midnight. I'm like, okay, so we've got to change something here. Why do you wake up at five to exercise? Well, I, you know, to de-stress, that's my de-stressor. I'm like, let's say this out loud for us to hear, right? You're waking up at five after five hours of sleep 
to de-stress by going to exercise. The number one thing you need to do is get more sleep. So I said, you have to go to sleep no later than 11, and you can't wake up before 6.30 in the morning. And then you could exercise whenever else you want in the day after that, after you've done that. The next month, she was pregnant. And I've seen this over and over and over again. Not yeah. to be underestimated. I mean, especially if we think about how our hormones are secreted in this pulsatile manner that follows our light and darkness cues, and then we're doing all these crazy things with our circadian rhythm. It just makes sense. But I, I mean, isn't it so easy to take these for granted when it's like, oh, sleep? Right. Oh, I'm too busy for that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely I mean, I, it is. These lifestyle factors, not to be underestimated. And so maybe maybe you've already answered this, but I opened up this question to my followers on Instagram and I said, what are you interested in learning about longevity and fertility? And a listener wrote in and she said, okay, what are the must-have habits for the ladies who are 35 plus? Yeah, so I would start with those three things that we already said, you know, your, your sleeping habits, your dietary habits. I'll talk about your environment habits in terms of reducing environmental exposure, uh, toxin exposure, and so forth. Um, but I think for me, one of the must-haves is to do less and let go more. I, you know, we <laughs> I, I've started to stop talking about, and I catch myself often when I say, okay, we need to manage your stress. And 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 I get this all the time in, in with the women that we support in my programs. It's like, I got this message just yesterday morning. So I know I'm really under a lot of stress. What can I do to manage it better? We can add on, like I used to say, well, let's do meditation. And if you like yoga, do yoga. And then I want you to journal. And like, I'm adding on to their plate of things to do, right? That's fine if that works for you. But I think more importantly, it's about letting go. It's about doing less. So it doesn't really help us and serve us if we're adding on to our stuff and now we're creating more of a burden like oh now i've like mark said i've got a journal so i've got to i've got to make sure i journal every day so i'm going to add that to my list of things that i need to do like now that's become a burden and become stressful so i think we need to let go of things before we add on and i think that's really important we're often it's very difficult to say no. We're saying yes to everything. Oh, we've, you know, do you want to go to the baseball game? Do you want to go out socially? Do you want to do this? And it's, we're about filling our calendar with more things. And I think it's really important that we actually start to strip that away and have empty blocks to do nothing and maybe be creative or just to sit and read and listen to music, spend some time outside in nature. I think it's about doing less and not adding more on. And that's one of the bigger things that I would say. So in terms of one of those top priority things that I would incorporate into this bigger picture of things to like preserve our fertility and, and so forth and our longevity, I would actually say, let's do less right now. I mean, if that's like the only thing you take away from this conversation, I think it would serve you tenfold moving forward. I'm deeply internalizing this advice. It's really <laughs> there's a there's a 
an act of surrender in it, which actually feels good. I remember when I was going through my own fertility journey, my my acupuncturist said to me, Kalia, you are putting stress management on the to-do list. And that is like the opposite of what we need to accomplish here. So thank you for the reframe. It's helpful for so many of us. Now, um, you have a really long history of debunking myths about anti-malarian hormone. And I think we should go there as part of this conversation. And I realize I probably need to take a step back for anyone who's listening and they might not be familiar with AMH yet. Will you just give us a quick breakdown of what that hormone is and why we care about it? Yeah. So um, AMH, anti-malarian hormone, is a hormone that is um, um, often, very rarely you'll actually have it checked by your OBGYN, although now more and more, but typically it's the main indicator that your IVF clinic or fertility clinic will use as a marker to determine if you are fertile. Um, and by that, it means, um, you know, do they think that you are producing enough eggs? The marker in general is specifically used um, as a marker for ovarian reserve. How many eggs theoretically do you have in your ovaries still waiting to be used? I think this concept of how many eggs do I have left is re has really been skewed because of this marker. So I, I, I want to say it was about 15 years ago, maybe 18 years ago. Prior to that, we never even looked at AMH ever. I mean, FSH was the only marker that was used um, as the primary kind of fertility indicator. Um, AMH has superseded it because I think it serves um, the, the fertility community well in terms of using that as a reason why you need to move forward with certain treatments. Um, but I don't think it's a strong marker to check. I never have. I don't think it's a reliable marker to check. And I think there's a lot of things that impact um, the results that you get when you test this marker. Not to mention it's become so mainstream that often I will see fertility clinics only checking this number and nothing else when they are doing labs, which is also doing everyone a disservice because of the value that they're putting on this one number. Um, and so much so that I'm trying to retrain uh, people's minds about it. Like, it's fine. It's not a big deal. I don't care about the number. Like, it's a number, so we have it so that we have a baseline. But other than that, like, let's not focus on it right now. Let's focus on the things that we know that we need to do. So it, my, my feeling, my theory with AMH is that it's supposed to tell us how many follicles you have left, how many you know eggs theoretically you have left in your ovaries. My feeling is, is that this number gets compromised by all the life stressors that we have, whether it's specifically stress, physical stress, emotional um, and spiritual stress. It could be environmental stress. Lack of sleep is a stress. Poor diet is a stress. We can add to it, right? All these things are going to impact it. Well, your body knows that it has to preserve your health first and foremost. So if your body is not functioning properly, then the number one thing, the first thing that it wants to um, uh, you know, eliminate to preserve your overall health and keep you going is your reproductive function because it's not essential for living, right? I mean, we think that it should be, but it's not. It's not an essential piece for your body to live. So 
that gets pushed to the to the to the back burner, so to speak. And so your my feeling is that your body is sending a signal to your ovaries to say, hey, we can't do this right now. We need to preserve your fertility for later. So we're going to hang tight. We're going to hold on. And my feeling is, is that it starts to preserve these follicles. And I often use the um, analogy of a little treasure box inside of your ovaries. And it's got this little treasure box inside of your ovaries and all those little follicles live in there. Okay. And when everything's functioning properly, that lid is open and it's just releasing them very nicely every month, recruiting them for the next, for the next cycle and putting them onto the conveyor belt to be used. My feeling is that AMH is testing what's actually on the conveyor belt, not what's in the treasure box. And that when you're under all this stress and you're impacted and your body says, hey, this is just not the right time, that it just closes the lid and locks the latch and says, we're going to hold on to these for, the, for later. We're going to hold on to these for when you are ready. But you're still, it has to put on something onto the conveyor belt to keep a cycle going. So it just releases one. It's just kind of letting it out. But when you harmonize everything, when you balance your hormones, when you take care of all of the things that we're discussing, then it says, I'm ready now. Open up, boom, boom, boom. And that number goes up. And that's why we see that number go up. If it's truly a marker for ovarian reserve, how many eggs you have left, so to speak, the number should never go up based on the model that we all understand or have been taught, which I question anyway. But so um, we should never see that number go up. It should only go down. I see that number go up all the time. I also see tons and tons and hundreds and hundreds of women get pregnant regardless of their low AMH numbers. Okay. So we're all focused on this AMH value because we're, oh, it says we're, we don't have enough eggs. Well, if we think about it logically, you only need one every month. So what does it matter if you've got 10 or 20 or whatever the number is? You just need one good one. Let's just focus on having a regular cycle, a good ovulation, one good healthy egg. You can get pregnant. The other thing around AMH that I think is really important to recognize is it's only a really valuable number in the IVF world. If you are going through IVF, they need that number to help determine what protocol they might use, how they're going to support you, how much medication they're going to use. But it's not a real indicator of your ability to conceive and have a healthy pregnancy. And I see that every week in practice, because I see women with AMH levels of point whatever, getting pregnant and having healthy pregnancies. So, you know, to me, it's something we need to test so that we have a baseline. So we understand maybe how we need to support you, but I don't think we should be focusing so much on it that it becomes the entirety of our fertility. Ooh, thank you so much for that really realistic and reassuring advice. And uh, I'm going to be carrying this mental model with me of the ovary and it's a treasure box and there's all these little <laughs> jewels inside and there's our little follicles. I absolutely love that. You know, it's with AMH and you mentioned how in the past so much weight has been put on AMH and something I've worried about and I wonder if you see too is I have um, many patients who, which 
I'm grateful for direct-to-consumer labs. Let me just say that there's a lot of places where <laughs> people can't get access to labs. I'm happy yeah. that there's a source. But now it's really easy to go out and order an AMH just on yourself, right? And if you don't yeah. have anyone like you to tell you what that means in your situation, it can be terrifying if it comes back and it's just a piece of paper saying you have a low AMH and maybe your fertility is compromised. Is that something you're seeing too? Uh, people, they come to you and they already have an AMH that is mysterious to them. Yeah, I see that quite a bit. And that's actually often what drives them. You know, they run that lab, they get the results back, they freak out. And now they're like, what do I do? And you know, who can help me with this sort of situation, which is actually why so many of my videos are geared towards AMH because there's so much fear around it. What I will say about those direct to consumer tests is that um, most of them are blood spot tests and that's fine, but I have not found those to be the most accurate, um, especially when we're talking about AMH. So if they have done one of those tests, I often say, well, let's, let's run a regular AMH lab where you're going to go into the lab and have your blood drawn and let's see if it's the same. And then let's see what it says. The other thing about AMH is, although it's, you're told that you can run it at any time of the cycle, theoretically, it should be accurate. I have found it to be the most accurate at the beginning of your cycle when you start your bleed than any other time in your cycle. So those are other variables Do I think that I think play a role in the results that we need to consider, but we often don't. Yeah. I like your style. That's how I run my labs too. I do my cycle day three, my estradiol, FSH, LH, I put AMH on there. And then when we repeat, we know we're being consistent because we're always going to be in that cycle day three range. So that's yeah. very helpful. You answered this already, but I'm just, we, I have to say it again. We've been told forever, you can't improve AMH. If your AMH is low, it's never coming up. But we just heard you say, you see AMH improving and I see it too. So I'm just underscoring that for anyone who's listening and they have this low AMH and they feel so defeated. It's not your destiny necessarily. Yeah, it's it's just one number. Your fertility is not all encompassed in any one lab for that matter. Certainly not all in AMH. So if, if you're concerned about it, let's take a step back and let's look at all of your hormones. Let's look at all of your health. Let's look at the bigger picture to have a better understanding for what it's all telling you. Because I think when you do look at that, you just might have a different perspective on things um, and your focus in terms of how you seek out support and what areas need to be supported will also probably be different if we do that. Yes. I'm just thinking of, um, I had a patient with a low AMH and we know that, for example, thyroid hormone activates our granulosa cells, which are our little helper cells surrounding our ovarian follicles. And she had, this patient had a low AMH and she had untreated hypothyroidism. We treated the thyroid and the AMH went up. But it, I think this all goes to say, you have to remain curious and ask questions beyond what's this one lab value, which, you know, you just told us we have to think whole person and it's so true for fertility and beyond, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's super important. By the way, you mentioned thyroid issues. That's one of the biggest things that I see is often overlooked. Um, I, I can't you know, underscore that point enough that, you know, it's not 
it's not ignored when you start working with a more functional integrative uh, provider. Um, then I think they're, they, they're trained, <laughs> you know, we're trained to look at that. But if you're in the conventional medical system, odds are your thyroid will probably not have been checked or only one um, hormone value for your thyroid will have been checked and not all of your thyroid hormones. So I think it's really important that we understand that you need a comprehensive assessment that allows you to understand how all the systems are functioning. You're, you're taking for granted when your doctor says, oh, we ran all the labs, everything's okay. The all is, is very subjective. You know, they ran all the labs that they think are either necessary or that their insurance, your insurance allows them to run or whatever, you know, walls have been put up for them. I think it's really important that you get a second opinion from someone who has a different perspective and viewpoint on medicine so that they could say, you know what, they ran some, but they really didn't run everything. Let's run everything so you can feel confident that everything looks fine and you could move forward with, you know, whatever path that you're going to choose. Yeah. And um, sometimes I say to patients, even if you still need IVF after we work together, I feel really confident that the outcome will be it will happen faster and it will be more successful, right? Maybe you're going to need one round or two rounds rather than five. Right. When we work on these foundational pieces. So I think that's really important. And before we move on from AMH, you recently answered this question in one of your videos. Someone wrote into you and said, can low AMH cause miscarriage? Oh. And this is something people have messaged me as well. And so I thought this is the perfect opportunity to get your take on that question. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, I answered it in that video and then I still had someone um, in my program ask me the same exact question yesterday. Yeah. Um, I had to, I had to chuckle about it, but um, emphatically, no, there is no correlation between low AMH and miscarriage. Um, the, if, and if we just think about it logically, AMH is again, theoretically a predictor of ovarian reserve and how many eggs you have left, it's not an indicator of egg quality. So if there's no reason, there's no connection between why lower ovarian reserve would be a connection as to why you had uh, a miscarriage. And I see this all the time. I say, well, where did you hear this? Like, oh, my fertility doctor told me that because of my low AMH, that's why I had a miscarriage and that's why I need to do IVF. I'm like, those things are all independent of one another. And they're, again, they're just trying to find a reason to connect these dots to allow you to make the decision to work with them to move forward with IVF. And again, there's, there is a place for IVF. I just don't believe that it should be pushed on someone through fear. Um, and, and, and it really should, and, and making up these, reasons why somebody needs it. There's enough people out there that need IVF. We need to actually be real with the patients that we're working with. We need to be upfront and honest so that they can make the best decision. It's okay to tell somebody, look, I don't know if this is the reason. I'm not even sure if IVF can help you. I work 
That's what I do. I treat you through IVF. And that's the tool I have to best treat you. And I do think it could be supportive and get you pregnant. I think that would be a more honest answer for somebody, right? Then trying to make up these connections to say, yes, you've got low AMH, it's caused a miscarriage, and as a result, you need to do IVF. So um, emphatically, there is no connection there, and I don't want anyone to believe that there is. Um, there's lots of other reasons for miscarriages, but certainly not AMH. Right. And when we when we associate these two things in a causative way, I think it hinders the curiosity to say, well, what else is going on that actually could be impacting the low AMH? Is it the thyroid? Is it antioxidant status? Is it stress? Is it all these other things that impact fertility in a lot of ways? And so it kind of is the end of the story, which is frustrating. It is. Another diagnosis that is often the end of the story, which I know we both see all the time, is the most frustrating diagnosis in the history of the world, unexplained infertility. Oh. Right. My least favorite diagnosis. Least favorite. It's terrible. Um, Because I know that you encounter so many patients who have received this diagnosis, will you just tell us what are some of the most common contributors that you see in your practice? Because I'm sure there are many times where you actually find things that are offer somewhat of an explanation. Yeah, hundred percent. So, actually, interestingly enough, I often—and this is more recent—I often have seen couples be told that they have unexplained infertility when they've also been told that they have different conditions or issues. Like they've been told, "Oh, you have PCOS," but it's unexplained why you can't get pregnant, or you have um, your your um, you have male factor. Um, the sperm quality is terrible but it's unexplained why you can't get pregnant. Like these are all reasons. So I would say if they've given you a reason and a diagnosis, and then they tag that on, I think they're just trying to fill space and air and time or something. I'm not quite sure why they're putting those things together. With that being said, for those individuals who truly have been given that diagnosis because they couldn't find a reason, the the first thing I think that we need to understand is that your fertility doctor has certain parameters that they're viewing your fertility within. And they're not going to stray outside of that box because of the type of medical system that we have um, in our culture, right? It's very much special uh, specialty-based, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But as a result, we've got blinders on and we can't really see beyond those little you know, imaginary walls for fear of, you know, whatever litigation or something else. So as a result, they're only going to keep their, um, their investigation very narrow in how they view your fertility and your health. That's why when you go in and do labs with them, they might say, oh, we've run everything, but it's really narrow in terms of what they run. So I find that the first thing is, is they just actually just didn't look well enough right? You know, they, they didn't ask the right questions and they didn't run the right labs to come up with the right answers to give you a solid reason why that might be happening. So that's the first thing I would say. And oftentimes it's ignoring thyroid issues or thyroid antibodies. Um, many times it's just, you know, I would even say that they don't even look for PCOS because they're looking for the typical textbook 
um, version of PCOS versus the atypical variations that we often find clinically. So those are things that are often very often missed. Um, but then I think they're not trained in functional medicine. And so when we take a step back and from a functional perspective, look at a body, we see very different things. So stress is a big one that we see. We know that it impacts fertility, but there's nothing that they can do. So it doesn't really get talked about very much. Um, then um, I would say to me, one of the biggest things at the top of my list is digestive issues. The amount of gut issues that we find um, and support and, and start there, by the way, if I find gut issues, that's where I start with everybody. Um, that is at the top of my list of things that I think could be a contributing factor to, you know, the unexplained diagnosis. And these things are unexplained because from a logical perspective, why would my, you know, no one doesn't, we don't think um, in the current medical model that we have that, you know, oh, your, your um, stress response is going to impact your fertility. Your digestive system is going to impact your fertility. We all know there are no walls in our body. You know, there it's all open. Every system connects with the other on purpose to function optimally. So if one system is not functioning well, it's going to impact over time. Maybe it's the first step. Maybe it's the fifth step. It's going to impact your reproductive function. So we need to, that's why I keep saying we just need to live healthier. We need to be healthier overall. And, and take a step back and look at that. And that's why I was saying earlier, you know, the, the digestive system is so important for me because that is the number one thing that I think really struggles in our current culture and environment because we don't value our diet in the same way as we used to. We don't eat properly um, as we should. And our food has certainly changed, you know, over the centuries as well. And so that's a huge one that I see as well. Kind of linking all of those things together, I'm, it's popping up in my mind, is just chronic inflammation at large. Chronic inflammation, yep. Right? And no one really yeah. looks unless you go to someone who's functionally trained because it, inflammation is such this nebulous thing. I mean, right. where do you find it and where is it coming from and what do I do with that? And, and I see that all the time of like, oh, well, you're struggling to get pregnant and you have raging gum disease and all this stuff going on in your gut and you have eczema that no one has ever talked to you about really. And it's kind of linking all these things together. And and you talked about this already, but so many patients come to us and they say, I've done every test. I've turned over every stone. <laughs> I've done every investigation. And you're like, okay, well, let me take a look. Let right. me see what's going on here. And isn't that encouraging and a message of hope when you say, oh, actually I have some ideas of some other things that we could investigate. And now this realm of possibilities has opened up. Yeah, it's it's super um, optimistic for me. There's very rare. It's very rare that I see someone who comes in and they've done all the things that I would think. You know, I, I, it's not to say that I haven't seen it. We, we probably all have, but yeah. it's very few and far between. So in general, there's always something else that we can look at, another system, another uh, test that we need to look at to have a better understanding for you. And if you've done all these tests, great. Let's look at them. Let's make sure that they were actually read properly. Let's make sure that nothing was missed. And then let's fill in the missing pieces that haven't been looked at. Right. Uh, looking at the 
the ranges from a more functional lens too, and an optimal hundred percent versus yeah. just a normal. I think that's right. a point well made. Okay, I have a listener question that's going to tie this all together. So we we had a listener write in and say. I have been diagnosed with unexplained, unexplained infertility, but I know there are lifestyle factors I could improve. I don't sleep eight hours a night. I often skip breakfast. I have a super high stress job. Should I keep searching for a more specific diagnosis or just clean up my lifestyle and see what happens? So I love this question. Um, and this is something that I often say, and she already did what I'm about to say that we should all do. She just hasn't taken that next step. So I think we can all objectively look at our personal health and life and lifestyle and objectively make a list of things that need to be improved. Like she just did, right? She said, I work, um, I'm stressed. I work too hard. I don't sleep. I can't remember everything else she said, but like she made that list for herself. Yep. Yet she's still asking, oh, should I keep looking for answers, right? In my mind, that's the place to start. You've made this list. You've objectively looked at your life and you've determined these are the areas that need more support. Start there, make progress in all of those things. And then if you're still not pregnant or still not feeling right, then I think we continue to look further. But she has that, that power. I think we're often looking for somebody else to tell us, okay, what do we need to do? Or what's that magic pill we should take? She has that answer. She hopefully has that magic pill. It's about making those changes. Now we just need to do it, which is hard. It's not an easy thing to do. Like all the things she needs to address are not easy things to change. But if she does, she's going to be much happier, much healthier. And my guess will be she's going to be more fertile and pregnant. Yeah, I perfectly stated lifestyle change is hard, but we always start with lifestyle. That's the foundation yeah. for sustainable behavior change. It's starting with those things that she's already identified. Well, um, I feel like I could talk for a year with you because it's just so much fun to hear what's going on in your brain and to banter about these questions. But we're coming to the end of our episode, and I love to end with something fun. And we know how important it is to have some lightheartedness in our fertility journey. So our final fun question for you is, What's something that you do that makes you laugh? How are you finding lightheartedness in your life? <laughs> so this is going to, this is, I think might even make you laugh. It makes my wife laugh when she hears me laughing, but um, I have a, um, uh, a, a little kind of love hate relationship with TikTok. Yep. And, Don't we all? And, and um, I will just go on TikTok and just start laughing when I see all these funny things. And my wife knows exactly what's happened. When she hears me busting out with a gut, you know, <laughs> laugh, she knows, oh, he's scrolling through TikTok. And I don't do it that often. But when I need a good laugh and I just need to just like escape for a minute, that's my little like, you know, secret thing that I do. <laughs> well, I'm impressed if you could keep it to a minute because when I do it, all of a sudden, 45 minutes have gone by. Well, so yeah, bad. I try to control it. And then when when she's like, she says, it's an, it's enough already because I'm like laughing too much for too long. I'm like, okay, I should stop. <laughs> okay, well, look how good it makes you feel. So this is our call to action to everyone <laughs> to find your thing that gives you lightheartedness and fun. 
Dr. Sklar, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of these clinical insights and all of these pearls from your own clinical practice that I think will be so beneficial to our audience. For all of our listeners, we are so happy to have you and thank you for continuing to tune in to our show's producer, Paola Martini, for making everything possible and getting this message out there to those who need it. Dr. Sklar, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.